0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Guy
0: Benson, Benson and we're here for the next hour to dissect what happened on election night in the midterm elections just a few weeks ago. What does it all mean Where do we go from here? We have a few guests coming up to break it down, starting first and foremost with Josh Krossauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Guy, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. All right. So let's just go through now that the dust has mostly settled and talk about what happened on election night just a few weeks back. Starting with governorships, Republicans were expected or at least expecting on their end to have a pretty good night, maybe even gain a governorship or two net net. They ended up losing two net governorships. What happened there?
2: Yeah, well, Guy, the story of the governorships is that Republicans came very close in two very blue states in Oregon and New York, but they couldn't quite get across the finish line But in a lot of these swing state governor's races or even red state governor's races, Republicans struggled, didn't do well well at all in Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, New Mexico. They did win the the governorship, the one pickup Republicans got in Nevada, though Democrats made gains in Arizona and in the blue states of Maryland and Massachusetts. So it was a net – Two governorships to the Democratic Party, which is uh, much better than early expectations and a sign that, you know, while Republicans did have some success stories in that they narrowed the margins in some unexpected places, they couldn't because of candidate quality, because swing voters went against them in the final few weeks. They couldn't uh, win some of the big battlegrounds, the biggest swing states, including the Kansas governor's race.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was largely a status quo election across the board, which is a pretty remarkable thing to see when three quarters of the electorate is unhappy with the direction of the country. When a vast majority of voters are unhappy with the direction of the country and you've got an incumbent president party running the entire show in Washington, that president very unpopular. And then for the most part, everyone just reelects all incumbents with a tiny handful of exceptions from both parties all across the country, that's a highly unusual event. And since we're talking about governors out of the gate here, I think this point does help underscore some of the broader dynamics as well, Josh, in that Republican governors, incumbents, including very conservative ones to moderate ones across the spectrum, did, for the most part, exceptionally well and exceeded What people were expecting from them, including, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, that margin still blows my mind, almost 20 points. Really strong showing for Brian Kemp in Georgia, Mike DeWine in Iowa, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, just to name a few, incumbent Republicans kind of blew it out.
2: That's right. There was a big... Split ballot phenomenon in in those states that you mentioned, where Governor Governor Sununu, for instance, won going away in New Hampshire, even as Don Baldock, the Senate nominee, lost badly. You know, Governor DeSantis really set the tone for for the Republican Party in almost winning Florida by 20 points and winning Hispanic heavy uh, heavy areas like Miami-Dade County and Osceola County, uh, expanding the Republican Party coalition in Florida by largely his his handling of COVID and the pandemic, opening the state up ahead of other states. Georgia, you mentioned Governor Kemp. That was another split-ticket state where Governor Kemp easily and comfortably defeated Stacey Abrams, but uh, we're going to a runoff in in the Senate race where Herschel Walker finished about a point behind Senator Warnock. So I think the big story is that these incumbents, these, these conservative governors, Governor Abbott in Texas among them, really showed how you can be successful, how you can win votes, how you can build broad coalitions but you need the right candidates. You need that type of leadership. And there was a disconnect at times between the Republicans at that top of the ticket versus the the down ballot Republicans who didn't have quite that record and reputation.
0: Top of the ticket also involves Senate races. And this was a Senate cycle, at least so far, in which not a single incumbent has lost from either party, which is extraordinary. You had sort of first time candidates, Without great, let's say, track records of success because they were new to the game, some people who were endorsed by Trump and were seen sort of as fringe on certain positions and that kind of thing, those folks lost who were Republican challengers. But even sort of a consensus, strong-looking candidate like Adam Laxalt in Nevada went down to defeat as well. All the Republican incumbent senators won. The only seat that has shifted hands from one party to the other so far is Pennsylvania. There's another opportunity for that in Georgia in this December 6th runoff. But, Josh, what are your overall takeaways from the Senate picture, which is going to be 50-50 or 51-49 for the Democrats after the December runoff? So the number one
2: takeaway is that the candidates that Trump promoted, whether it was Dr. Oz in, in, in Pennsylvania you know, we, whether you're talking about a Blake Masters in Arizona, the, the the weakness of some of these candidates was 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 obvious. Uh, Republicans like a like a Masters, for example, ran behind the top of the ticket, ran behind a lot of the the more moderate uh, swing district uh, Republicans on the ballot. Uh, and really cost Republicans. The Senate, Democrats are either going to stay even at 50 seats, could gain a seat if they if they win in Georgia. Uh, Walker, we'll see what happens in Georgia, but he underperformed Governor Kemp, like we just talked about, uh, signaling the fact that a, a more a moderate or more mainstream Republican could have won that Senate race. Uh, so there are a lot of missed opportunities on the Senate board for the Republican Party, meaning that they could end up losing a seat against expectations. And what we saw broadly, Guy, is that Look, uh, I think voters wanted a check on the party in power like you normally see in a midterm election, but they also wanted a check on the more extreme elements of the Republican Party. So you saw the this dynamic as you've been discussing that the mainstream, the governors, the mainstream candidates, the governors, the folks that articulated a center-right governing agenda did quite well and were able to, to – to, 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 almost win comfortably in many battleground states. But the candidates that had less experience, a little more exotic, a little more extreme, underperformed than may have cost Republicans the Senate.
0: Then we have the House of Representatives. It was long-held conventional wisdom that the Republicans would gain the House of Representatives. And, of course, they have. They will be in the majority. But it took much longer than people were expecting to get finally to that official call because there were – Quite a lot of points left on the board, it would look like, for the Republicans. And they're going to end up in the ballpark because as of this conversation, there are recounts and long counts in California, etc., cetera, still going on. But ultimately, it will be roughly the same-ish size majority that the Democrats currently have, just flipping roles. So that, of course, matters in terms of the Republicans' ability to completely end a unified Democratic agenda. That's going to be over. Republicans will control committees. There'll be oversight. There'll be hearings. They will have more authority on that front. But it will be a pretty narrow majority, I think, with a more rambunctious caucus for the Republicans to try to control compared to what Pelosi had because she was pretty good at keeping her people in line. What do you make of the House cycle? The types of candidates who won, those who didn't, underperformance, overperformance, etc. And then perhaps we can talk a little bit about where we go from here and what the next two years going to look like.
2: Yeah, so that that was the biggest disappointment for Republicans and that they expected to win at least 20 seats. They thought they were going to make inroads in some of the bluer parts of the country where Biden's uh, approval had taken a real dip. And it turned out that the sort of the the, the protection that Democrats put in, in these battlegrounds held And the independent voters that swung – the independent voters normally would vote against the party in power, and the exit polling show they actually backed Democrats by a few points in the end. Uh, One one, one interesting note on the exit polling data, the college-educated white voters, which – you know, have been a, a big swing part of, 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 of the electorate in recent elections. We had thought that these voters would swing much more to the Republicans, that they, you know, a lot of concerns about the economy, crime, education. We saw that in Virginia, Guy in 2021. Guy, uh, Glenn Youngkin, did quite well with this constituency. But uh, Democrats held their own with, with this group. They uh, voted 53% for Democrats in, in the wave, the blue wave of 2018, and they still backed Democrats with 50% of the vote in this past election. So the, the 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 suburban wine mom vote uh, stuck with the Democratic Party. It's why you saw folks like Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin, and Kim Schreier, among other Democrats in tough districts, prevail. Um, and, you know, and also it's interesting that like Republicans clearly gained on the House popular vote. They're, they're, we're still counting votes, but they are you know, probably going to win by two or three points in, in the overall House vote, which means that like Republicans made inroads with, with Hispanic voters. They made inroads with black men. They made inroads with some uh, atypical constituencies. But a lot of those gains were made in sort of safe seats where the battlegrounds weren't being fought. So it's much – in other words, it's a lot more valuable to to win over a swing suburban voter than maybe an urban uh, voter that was disenchanted with with the Democratic Party. So there were a lot of wasted votes for for Republicans, and Democrats held their own in many of these big, big battleground states. The one exception guy, though, is New York. Uh, Republicans gained four seats in New York, which was – Well, Florida too,
0: right? Florida and New York both sent four new Republicans Net, uh, so you combine Florida and New York, that's eight gains for Republicans just in those two states. That right there is the majority.
2: That's right. Florida, a big success story. The Florida was more of a redistricting success right. story because right. of the new line. New York was a, a fact that crime. We talked about this so much, and it didn't. It didn't show in the whole map. Nationally, But in New York, Governor Hochul only won by five points in a deep blue state, and Republicans won almost every swing race, including some districts in Long Island, in the Hudson Valley, in some pretty deeply blue territory. So that that, that alone, that, that four seats in New York alone uh, makes up the majority for, for, for the Republicans, and that's uh, that, that, that's one of the big silver linings for the Republicans on election night.
0: Yeah, and they also won some seats in places where they typically don't. So there were pickups here or there, but there were missed opportunities as well. I would say that the Republicans not blowing the doors off or anything like that, not making big gains in a place like California, but absolutely holding their own out in California in the seats that they had to win and you know places where they had an opportunity maybe to gain just a little bit of ground. They seem to do that out in California, which, again, is this very interesting dichotomy of the election where in you know the Midwest and the Southeast, there were certain seats that were – Blown by the Republicans, you could argue. There's definitely one blown out in Washington State and that sort of thing. But they gained a seat in Oregon. They did relatively well, all things considered, in California. And then just briefly, Josh, Arizona, I think, is very interesting because the Republicans painfully lost the governor race, very close, lost the Senate race, less close. But I still think you'd have to make the case, and you kind of did already, that that was a winnable seat of the GOP under slightly different circumstances, the number one vote getter in the entire state who got the highest number of votes, winning by roughly 11 points, was the state treasurer, who's just sort of a fairly normal run-of-the-mill Republican candidate, won by double digits easily. And of Arizona's nine congressional seats, House seats, three of them are Democratic seats, three of them are Republican seats, and then there are three sort of purple Swing seats and the Republicans swept them to control six out of the nine seats in Arizona. You add up all the Republican House votes in that state, and that really overperformed the top of the ticket in Kerry Lake and Blake Masters. Arizona, I feel like, is a really interesting and important case study.
2: Absolutely. You couldn't ask for a better case study in what went wrong. And what, what went right for the Republican Party in Arizona? Right. You know, you, you talked about those House races. These have these are like your your biggest swing districts in the entire country, and Republicans did quite well uh, narrowly in all races. But Juan Siscomani is going to be, I think, a, a future star in the Republican Party uh, out of out of the Phoenix area. Uh, Dave Schweikert hung on uh, in, in Scottsdale. Uh, the, the but, but then you saw Kerry Lake narrowly lose and Blake Masters lose pretty badly. Uh, well the, the big takeaway, let's go to the governor's race. Uh, it, the, again, it goes back to white college educated voters, which used to be a big part of the Republican Party coalition. But now they're moving much more towards the Democratic Party. These are the Liz Cheney voters guy. Uh, the, the white college well, I would just voters. I
0: would say they're they're moving more towards the Democrats except in many cases. That we talked about earlier in these successful Republican governors, right? Like r- right. those. I, those... I, I meant in the Arizona.
2: It should have been specific in the Arizona governor's race, the Arizona Senate race, where, where Republicans nominated uh, MAGA oriented candidates. In the case of Carrie Lake, she told John McCain voters to, to get the hell out, uh, to get the hell out of the party. Right. And the, the numbers speak for themselves. The Fox exit poll showed Hobbs, who did not run a good campaign, didn't debate Carrie Lake, was not a good candidate, nonetheless won 55 percent of that white college-educated vote up four points even in a blue wave of 2018 uh, going going back four years. So there is this clear evidence, Sky, that if you're going to run too far to the right, if you're going to run too far to the MAGA wing of the party, you're going to squander a whole lot of important votes that make the difference in these close races.
0: Yeah, and I would say that there is on substance a difference between being very conservative – and being very Trumpy or MAGA, those are not necessarily the same thing. We saw some of these independent swing suburban voters willing to pull the lever for very, very conservative candidates, members of the House, governors in particular, some senators, as long as they were not seen as too closely aligned with Trump and some of the fringe stuff, some of the you know, twenty twenty stop the steal conspiracies. And I think that is one of the lessons here that Republicans need to think about. A few more themes to discuss with Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News contributor right after this on the Guy Benson post-election
3: special. The Guy Benson Thanksgiving Day special. What does it all mean? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Thanksgiving Special. What does it all mean? Here is your host, Guy Benson. We
0: are back. Happy Thanksgiving. Josh Crash Hour is with us breaking down the 2022 midterms. All right, so we're going to talk coming up a little bit later in this hour, Josh, with Tom Bevin about the polling. We'll get into all of that here in a moment. But before we break and get to Tom, I just want to get your sort of nutshell analysis on what comes next in terms of the next couple of years. We don't want to jump face first into the presidential pool just yet. But in terms of Capitol Hill, the dynamics there, a Democratic Senate very narrow, a Republican House very narrow, is this just sort of a stymied stalemate for the next 2 years, sort of knife fighting in a phone booth with neither party getting all that much done and the big ticket items needing to be bipartisan?
2: I I think you're going to see a lot of gridlock. I was uh Sort of struck that right right after Republicans officially got that House majority, you saw some of the committee chairs and incoming committee chairs talking about you know their subpoenas and oversight of Hunter Biden. Which you know we got to remember that the the, the issues that voters care about are the economy, inflation, crime, immigration. I, I'm not sure there's as much an appetite for endless investigations. So I think one thing there's going to be gridlock, but I think. Republicans have have an opportunity to show that they can at least try and govern, try to set an agenda that will set the party up effectively for 2024. I'm not sure. I know that voters may want oversight in, in some key areas, but endless investigations, endless subpoenas, sort of the dog and pony show that, that, that drives Americans crazy. I'm not sure that that would brand the party in the type of direction they want to get going to rebound from 2022. So that's going to be an interesting pivot point for whoever is the new speaker. Kevin McCarthy certainly would seem to be the favorite, but Uh, You know, they're going to really have to decide how they want to put their their best face forward. There are a lot of actually 16 to 18 House Republicans that are representing Biden districts. So the next House majority uh, is really going to be dependent on how this this group can uh, brand itself, can market itself and can govern uh, to the to the to the needs of the American people.
0: Yeah. And the Democratic Party, meanwhile, they've got a bunch of potential pitfalls ahead of them as well. They've got some problems with the American people, clearly, as well. So it'll be a fascinating few years to watch after a confounding and history-bucking midterm election here in 2022. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios, and a Fox News contributor, our guest here on this Guy Benson post-election special, What Does It All Mean? Josh, happy Thanksgiving and thanks again. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll we'll see you after the holidays. We'll talk with Tom Bevan about polling... The Real Clear Politics Guru is
3: up next. Stay here for more of the Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Thanksgiving Special. What does it all mean? Here is your host, Guy Benson.
0: It is the Guy Benson Show Thanksgiving Day Special. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. And with us now is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com at Tom Bevan RCP on Twitter if you want to follow him there. Tom, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for being here. Same to you, Guy. All right, so you and I spoke on the show many, many times in the lead-up to the midterm elections about polling, the accuracy of polling, and boy, that conversation gets only more interesting and more murky and more complicated after the midterms, doesn't it?
4: It does. I mean, we had, look, this was a very unique election. I think the more we the more we dig in the data, and the more it settles out, the more, you know, we are surprised by, you know, how this thing turned out. I mean, Democrats really did defy history and uh, some really bad fundamentals to perform stronger than, uh, I think, a lot of folks, including myself, thought they would. Um, a couple of things: the national vote, which you know, Republicans did fairly well. I mean, they. We'll see where the final number. It usually takes quite some time for that to get settled, but it should be somewhere in the three to four point range for Republicans, which is pretty darn close to where our our average was uh, for the generic congressional ballot. Finished at I think two and a half. So, and then the state level, you had in in some of these Senate races, you know, the polling in some states was fairly accurate in places like uh, Ohio, for example, North Carolina. Wisconsin was eh, a little bit under uh, underestimated Dem support there, but then you had a place like you know New Hampshire where Maggie Hassan won convincingly. None of the polls really saw that coming, um, and in Florida it was the opposite where you had uh, you know Marco Rubio was up about nine points in our average. Um, most polls had him anywhere from eight to twelve, and he won by sixteen. So his his support and DeSantis's support was understated there, and then and then you had these you know close competitive elections uh i think fetterman performed better than than almost anybody saw any 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 pollster saw happening there even some of the the mainstream polls didn't have him winning by the amount he won by most of the polls had the the race in georgia going to a runoff which is where it ended um so it's a it's sort of a mixed bag and and we'll see when we dig in the numbers you know I, i think by and large just a quick glance through some of these through some of these states and the results, I think Trafalgar, uh, Robert Cahaley, whose group had been one of the most accurate pollsters over the last three cycles, had a rough night. They were projecting, uh, you know, a, a Republican wave, a surge, um, and some other pollsters like, you know, Marist and, and some of those folks um, did, I think, reasonably well. So, so we'll see when we get our our final pollster rankings out um, exactly where things shake out. But it was it was a mixed bag, I think.
0: Tom, I saw a comment from Stan Greenberg, who's a prominent Democratic pollster. And he said that at least according to his data, there was a huge, huge number, like a giant chunk of the vote, much larger than usual, that decided within the last day or two of the cycle. And I think a lot of people were expecting, understandably, based on trends and patterns and history and all of it and the fundamentals that you mentioned – They expected a lot of those people to decisively break for the opposition party. That didn't happen. You look at pure independence. They very narrowly went for the Democrats, basically a split, which is great news for the Democrats, concerning news for the Republicans. But those late deciders and the fact that there were so many of them, and I guess there was this gut check where a bunch of them said, I'm not really sure I can vote for the Republicans, certainly Certain types of Republicans suffered, whereas other types of Republicans did extremely well or overperformed. That effect, that final last minute decision group, especially if it's a big group, and especially if it cuts against the conventional wisdom, that throws a huge monkey wrench sometimes into the polling and the expectations, doesn't it?
4: It does. And, uh, you know, I haven't looked at that data specifically, but I remember looking in Pennsylvania, for example, and there were very few undecideds, you know, 4%. Uh, in some of the polls there, and in some of these other races, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'd have to I'd have to dig more into that uh, to see if that's actually true. But what is true, and I think you you pointed it out. I mean, this to me is the most interesting piece of this election: is that independents went for the Democrats by by two points, 51-49. That is a huge break from recent history, and his, I mean, general history, but but especially recent history. When you think about recent midterms in 2018. Democrats, uh, independents sided with the Democrats by 12 points. In 14. they sided with the Republicans by 12 points. In 2010, which was a 63 seat shellacking for Obama, uh, Dem- independents sided with the Republicans by 15 points. And in 2006, which was a bad, bad year for Republicans, independents sided with Democrats by 18 points. So, um, you know, I'm digging into exactly why did independents not. Do what they traditionally have done in midterms. And again, you look at the data, uh, they had a very sour opinion of Joe Biden. I mean, uh, his approval rating, his favorability rating, inflation was their number one concern. Uh, I've gone back and looked through all the pre election polls, um, and it wasn't close between inflation and the economy and abortion. When you look at the exit polls, it was a lot closer. For some reason, uh, independents really were, I think, susceptible and and uh, bought into, I think, the Democrats' arguments, their closing messages that, you know, uh, about abortion, about threats to democracy and the like. I, I think Democrats did a very good job of making this less a referendum on the president and the Democratic Party and more about a choice uh, between the two parties. Did candidate quality have something to do with it? Yes. I think that's evident in some of the Uh, in in some of these races, but not all these races. I mean, it doesn't explain all of these races. And so um, it's it's fascinating, and I agree with you. I think it's something for Republicans to be very concerned about why, in this kind of environment, with these kind of fundamentals, which were, by all accounts, I mean, any measure you want to look at, should have yielded big Republican victories across the board. They simply didn't happen. In a lot of these races, they didn't happen because independents decided they were going to vote for Uh, the end party, they were going to vote for the status quo, which, again, is a huge break from history.
0: Yeah. And the thing that's also a little bit puzzling is if you just could isolate certain points, like if you could get a crystal ball a few days before the election and the crystal ball would convey that the electorate nationally for the House will be R plus three or four, probably, as you said, when the final numbers finally shake out and are Formalized because it takes days and weeks, especially because of California, et cetera. But if it's going to be in the R plus three or four range, as is likely, I think almost all of us would look at that one data point in isolation and say, okay, the polls were generally correct. This is a very good night for Republicans. They are going to have a red wave with that number. And of course, we didn't see the red wave. I, I think similarly, if you had just showed me Ron DeSantis's number, right, his margin in Florida, I would say, oh, my gosh, this could be a tsunami type event across the country. If you told me that Republicans were going to win and net four House seats in New York, potentially, I would have said, OK, that's a tsunami across the country. If you told me that Governor Stitt in Oklahoma, who was really struggling very close in a lot of the polling, he ended up winning handily out there. I'd say, OK, that was fool's gold for the Democrats. This is going to be a great night for the Republicans. There are a number of Zoom in data points that absolutely would have indicated a big, big red wave. On the other hand, if you two or three days before the election showed me Patty Murray's margin of victory in Washington or Michael Bennett's margin of victory in Colorado or the results of the House races, those two big ones in Pennsylvania or in Virginia, two out of three sticking with the Democrats, I would have said, okay. Hold your horses, this could be a very different type of night. It's just unusual to see different signposts pointing in very opposite directions and resulting in I would say one of the more confusing overall outcomes of an election that I've ever covered
4: I agree a hundred percent i mean it's it is it is the most bizarre election uh that I've ever covered and and for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, i mean again, think about this so so you know the the movement in Florida and in New York, uh, but yet there's no movement in Georgia. There's no movement in Arizona. There's no movement in Nevada. They go backwards in Pennsylvania. Uh, Republicans do. I mean that's just that is not typical. I mean this is a very anomalous, I think a historical although there
0: election. was movement, right? There was movement in Georgia for Brian Kemp, who went from a narrow win four years ago to a comfortable win. And then, of course, we're on the Senate side waiting for a runoff in early December. But, you know, that might maybe the Kemp example does point to the candidate quality issue that you were talking about, both in his favor and actually cutting against Stacey Abrams.
4: Correct. And and that was one of the questions uh, that was most interesting to me was, you know, how, how much ticket splitting, how much drop off would we have from the top of the ticket uh, in some of these races? There was indications that we might have some of that in in Ohio, and we we might have some of that. I mean, you had a you had a ticket split in Wisconsin, where the Republican governor candidate who who was seemed to be in a very close race with Tony Evers ended up losing, but Ron Johnson won. Uh, you mentioned Georgia is another one, Arizona is another one uh, where mm-hmm. it was very you know, close. Yeah, so um, so that that's that's again that merits. Uh, I think, further investigation as to, again, some of its candidate quality, uh, but that doesn't explain all of it. And, and there are other reasons. Again, I think uh, in the exit polls, I think abortion was, I mean, we knew it was going to motivate Democrats, and we knew from the data that Republicans were fired up to turn out. And I think both of those things are true, um, but it did seem to be a more potent message with independents than, than any of the pre-election polls suggested.
0: Although, and on the other hand, some of the Republican governors who had signed significant abortion restriction legislation won, won handily, and won independence. So, like, there's so many point-counterpoint elements of this election. It's fascinating, Tom, to pull it back to the polling, and now moving forward, right? We've got the next two years where it's going to be this extremely tightly divided, polarized slog – To another presidential election, and trust me, there are all sorts of interesting dynamics for 2024, without getting into the personalities and the candidates or any of that for 2024, from a polling perspective, now what? Because I know now, for myself at least, I will go into the next election cycle extremely suspicious of the numbers and my instincts because the numbers and the instincts seem to be aligning – towards something that made sense this year and instead we got this grab bag this very messy picture instead where I'm going to be really skeptical and cautious and second guessing of everything I wonder is that sort of the sense that we're going to have to lurch together kind of into this sort of this like blind spot that we haven't experienced before collectively in in this way maybe
4: yeah, I mean I, I agree with that. I mean I do think um, – again, we'll do a detailed analysis of, of the individual pollsters and how they performed and who, who was accurate, who was inaccurate. Um, but I think generally speaking, in some ways, you look at this election and and all of the traditional historical indicators and metrics were pointing in one direction, and that's not what we got. So so in that sense, they're – broke. well, I should say, are they broke? The question is, are they broken? Are the fundamentals is – the, is the argument about fundamentals, is that no longer valid moving forward? Or was this just such a unique election in and of itself? It was just an anomaly, an ahistorical, and the fundamentals will reassert themselves in, in right. the next cycle. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't, and I suppose it's going to depend on who the nominees are, uh, but I agree with you. I mean – this election really uh, was was uh, shocking in a lot of ways because of all of the different, um, as you said, different directions that that the data you know was pointing in, heading in, and, and is pointing to heading out. So I think I think we all have to sort of uh, take a good hard look at what happened and, and be very cautious and skeptical in the next election as well.
0: Yeah, even if it turns out that twenty twenty two. Was a black swan event in terms of the fundamentals and the polling and the data and the late breakers and all of it. I think the residue of the black swan event will be with us for a number of cycles because it's like just when you thought you maybe had stuff figured out, the voters threw a big curveball. And it wasn't like a curveball in the sense that, okay, we zigged, they zagged, we were completely wrong about everything. It's like we were wrong about many things, but in opposite ways in opposite directions where some Republicans did way better than we thought they would. And other Democrats and just broadly, the Democrats did better than we thought they would as well, resulting in this very messy, cloudy, confusing picture that I know you and I and others will be puzzling over for weeks to come and then approaching 2024 tentatively, at least from an analysis perspective, for the reasons that we have just laid out with our guest, Tom Bevan, co-founder, president, of realclearpolitics.com. All sorts of data there. If you want to comb through all of it and, and try to wrap your head around it, you can go to realclearpolitics.com. Tom, really appreciate your time and your insights here. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll talk again very soon. All right. Thanks, Guy. It is the Guy Benson Show Thanksgiving Special. Stay tuned.
3: The Guy Benson Thanksgiving Day Special. What does it all mean? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Thanksgiving Special. What does it all mean? Here is your host, Guy Benson.
0: It's the home stretch of this Guy Benson post-election special. What does it all mean? As we look back at the elections that we just had here in this country, I'm Guy Benson host of The Guy Benson Show on Fox News Radio, Fox News contributor, and also political editor at townhall.com. Thank you so much for listening to our guest today, Tom Bevan, in the last segment before that, Josh Krasauer, as we were really getting into the granular details, into the weeds a little bit on what the big takeaways were from the midterm elections 2020. Since it is Thanksgiving, I thought perhaps we should end on a note of gratitude, which is no matter how you feel, about the outcomes of the election. And there was a little bit for everyone. Democrats have certain things to be happy about. Republicans have certain things to be happy about. Some things transcend politics. We'll all move on to fight another day and political disagreements. There'll be another election in two years. There'll be a lot of gridlock and battling over the ensuing two years because we're gonna have divided government. But we do live in the greatest country in the history of the world with incredible prosperity and freedom and opportunity And I think it's worthwhile to take some time to reflect on that and to be thankful for it, which is the whole purpose of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not a holiday that is for any particular race or religion or tribe in the United States of America. It is a holiday for all Americans, celebrated across the board with friends, with family, with food, with football, with all sorts of things that have nothing to do with politics. So maybe set all that aside, at least at the dinner table this evening and for the weekend and go enjoy the foliage. Go enjoy other things that are so special about life and particularly life in the United States of America, where so many of us are blessed to live. And then we'll come back next week and get right back to it, arguing about the issues of the day, the Republicans stopping the Biden agenda in the House and so on and so forth. But. We're in the holiday season now, and there's a lot to be thankful for, and we should never lose sight of that. I am thankful to our guests, Josh Krasauer and Tom Bevan of Axios and Real Clear Politics, respectively, and I am thankful to all of you for tuning in. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you on The Guy Benson Show.
3: You've been listening to the Guy Benson Thanksgiving Day Special. What does it all mean? A Fox News Radio Special.
0: It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That final hour now, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern, is our happy hour. And it's sponsored, as always, by our friends at The Finished Long Drink, which I strongly recommend. It is delicious. It is refreshing. We are stocked for the holiday season at our house with long drink. Thelongdrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. They have really expanded all across the country. 40-plus states now. TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online if you so choose. Always drink responsibly. 21-plus only. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home here at the program. Lots of content there, including the free podcast every day on demand after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that... Let's get to our final guest of today's show. Mike Pence served as the forty-eighth Vice President of the United States. He was Governor of Indiana. He was a member of the House of Representatives from Indiana, and he is author of the new book "So Help Me God." Mr. Vice President, welcome to the show.
5: Uh, thank you so much, Guy. It's a great honor to be on, and and thanks thanks for calling attention. I know you know what it's like to write a bestseller. Congratulations on end of discussion. But it's a great privilege for me to to write our story, and so help me God, and I appreciate the chance to chat with you about it.
0: Well, we're happy to have you here, and I have to add to your bio, before all of those titles that you accumulated, you were a talk radio host, a conservative talk radio host based in Indiana. One of your famous taglines that you would use all the time was, I'm a conservative, but I'm not in a bad mood about it. Do you think there's too many conservatives these days who are sort of too grumpy about being on the right
5: well, look, you're uh, look. I, I, I was in talk radio, never as big as you've arrived, but, um, but yeah, you know what? I, I do think the American people um, like happy warriors, <laughs> and uh, I think you look around these midterm elections. I think a lot of the people that won those elections, that a lot of the candidates that won us uh, that new Republican majority, were out there telling our story, holding the Biden-Harris administration's failed policies accountable. But uh, but but conveying that message, you convey so well, Guy, that, uh, look, w- we get back to the policies that we've been advancing in the conservative movement from Reagan to Trump, uh, and we can turn this country around faster than you can imagine.
0: Now, I have to ask you a question. Be honest. When you were a radio host and you were interviewing an author, did you always read every page of every book?
5: I always read a page of the book.
0: okay same so i have to confess i got your book my copy of so help me god literally today so i've only just started it but as i am making my way through it you have so much to say about your early life your early career a lot of very interesting vignettes out of your public service obviously so much of the attention on the book tour and in interviews has been about the last six years and your time with president trump then just after the administration, and then perhaps a look toward the future. As you look back, broadly speaking, at your time as vice president and the Trump administration, would you say, net-net, that the Trump administration and the Trump presidency was a success?
5: Unquestionably a success. Um, it obviously didn't end well, Guy, and I, I write candidly about that and. Uh, the... And, and speak about uh, the reasons both both why and, and how I, I took the stand that I took on that tragic day in January. But, you know, so help me God has been called one of the most fulsome defenses of the Trump-Pence record that's in print to date, and, uh, and I'm honored by that. Look, I mean, think about what we accomplished in, in one term in an administration, the largest investment in our national defense, a new branch of our armed forces, our military crushed the ISIS caliphate. Took out the most dangerous terrorists in the world. At home, we cut taxes and regulation, unleashed American energy, created seven million good-paying jobs. Way, you know, unemployment at a 50-year low. Wages rising at the fastest pace in a decade. Uh, and we were energy independent. And we secured our border. Reduced illegal immigration by 90 percent. Appointed three Supreme Court justices and 300 conservatives to our court. I think the Trump-Pence administration accomplished more in three years than most administrations accomplished in eight. And I will always be proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration.
0: The reason I asked that, and you just ran through a lot of those achievements, is before we even get to January 6th, and I actually don't plan to really ask you about it because you've gotten thousands of questions, it seems, on that. You've written about it. My position on what happened that day is crystal clear. But Because we all watched what happened on January 6th, we have to remember the reason that there was that uprising or that riot was there was an election just a few months prior. People didn't want to accept in some cases the outcome of that election, including the former president. But you guys lost that election and you just rattled off a really impressive list of accomplishments politically. And yet after just those four years, you lost and on the same day that your ticket lost to Biden and Harris, Republicans actually gained double-digit seats in the House of Representatives. Given the track record that you've laid out, why is it in your mind that a second term was not secured? Well, I, you know, I would leave
5: that to experts like you, Guy. You know, I'm a I'm a guy that's been in, in public service, and I've had the privilege to be a candidate. As I recounted so help me God. My first few campaigns we lost for Congress. I learned a lot of lessons uh, in my own life about making sure that I was living out my Christian faith in the way I, I carried myself in the public square. Ten years later, I had a chance to run again and uh, and had the chance to serve as a conservative in the Congress, uh, serve as governor of Indiana, and then as your vice president. And uh, uh, but all along the way, I, I, I've been a part of this movement that was really minted uh, with Ronald Reagan. And, uh, uh, and, and when I look at the at the 2020 election, I, I just uh, I remember telling the president more than once when I'd returned from campaign rallies, even in the midst of COVID restrictions in many states, I said, I think the enthusiasm out there is greater now than it was in 2016. And we got 10 million more votes than we got. Uh, in 2016 but at the end of the day uh, uh, after all the legal challenges played out uh, we came up short but I don't I don't think in any way uh, that it was a rejection of uh, the agenda I don't think it was a rejection of our ideals and our values I just think it, it tells us well, was that it? going forward well I just look I as I have said before I think the American people long for leadership that could unite us Uh, around our highest ideals, but also would bring the level of civility and respect that the American people show one another just about every day. You know, having been out of politics for two years, Guy, uh, traveling around the country, going to the grocery store near our house here at Indiana, our politics are very divided, but I'm not convinced the American people are as divided as our politics are today. And as people will find out again around the Thanksgiving table, you can get some pretty diverse groups together and still get along and i I, I honestly think one of the messages of that campaign is the American people would, would would like to see leadership that's about all the things that we were about in the days ahead but but is looking for ways to to bring our country together, fight for what you believe in but uh, but show the kind of respect that the American people show each other every day.
0: Mr. Vice President, you know how this works. We're up on a break. We're going to take it real quick. More of this conversation with Mike Pence about his new book, So Help Me God, on the other side. It's the Guy Benson Show.
3: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: back. Thank you very much for listening to The Guy Benson Show on this Thanksgiving week. And I'm honored to have with us here, talking about his new book, So Help Me God, the former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. And we'll pick up our conversation. Much has been made about your disagreements with President Trump over the election, of course, and the outcome, and then what happened on January 6th, and the lead up to all of that. And then sort of this public breakup and what he was doing and tweeting on that day and then ever since you know, some of the subsequent skirmishes and that kind of thing. But on policy substance, would you say that there's any daylight between you and former President Trump?
5: Well, I got that question this summer at a, I, you know, I've been speaking at college campuses with Young America's Foundation, which is an outstanding group. You're well aware of and Yep, I got a question just like that, and I said, I, "Look, I, I think we have a difference in focus. Uh, we certainly are different men with different styles, but I, I'm, I, I don't see any daylight in the policies. You know, and the foundation that I created earlier last year really laid out uh, all the policies that have defined the conservative movement from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. And you know, Reagan was, as as you know and articulate uh, better than anybody, you know. He was strong national defense, limited government, traditional values. The Bushes both added to that and built on that, uh, but then Donald Trump added, you know, border security and fair trade, and standing up to China, uh, to our agenda. And I, I believe that's an agenda that that it won the Congress this year. I believe we're going to win back America on that same agenda. Uh, If we'll just carry forward with the kind of leadership that will bring the country together around those principles.
0: So I do just want to ask you one follow up then. And this is not intended as a gotcha or anything like that. But you said that there wasn't any daylight. President Trump made history and raised some eyebrows by coming out and endorsing effectively, saying that he is supportive of same sex marriage. Obviously, that is not where you have been in the past. Has your thinking changed on that issue at all? Or is there some daylight on that question?
5: No, I think for me as a Bible-believing Christian, I'll always believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, But the Supreme Court has ruled on that issue. And, uh, you know, we can disagree with the Supreme Court, but we can't disobey it. And I will tell you that subsequent decisions that the court has made respecting religious freedom have been uh, very heartening to me. You know, in the Oberfeld decision, you know, Justice Kennedy actually wrote that the decision itself would raise profound questions around religious freedom. And the court's been sorting through that. And I think that's the most important thing as we go forward. I'm I'm someone uh, uh, who truly does believe that uh, uh, I'm called as a, as a Christian to love my neighbor as myself. People that know the Pences, and you know the Pences, know that we, we aspire to that uh, in all of our dealings with people. But uh, my values may not change, but one of those values is— Is always to treat everyone as I want to be treated.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned this at the time. You were kind to invite me over to the vice presidential residence while you were vice president. We had dinner together with a handful of people, and we talked about some of these issues on same-sex marriage and gay rights and LGBT issues, and you were extremely... Uh, polite, And we had a cordial, I think, constructive conversation. I think some people find that hard to believe based on some of the ways that you were portrayed. I think a lot of that is unfair. Uh, and I think it's important for me to say, hey, look, you know, we had this great conversation over dinner. I think that's important. I think it's also worthwhile and reasonable for me to at least say in the context of this discussion and the question that I asked, you mentioned Obergefell's the law of the land that you might disagree, but we're not going to disobey. Can you understand why there would be some concern among people like me who are in same-sex marriages uh, when there are people on the national stage who might argue that Obergefell should be overturned or that these types of unions should not be legal? What's your response to that when you hear that type of challenge?
5: Well, you know, there's an entire chapter in my book about the experience we had in Indiana. you um i'd I'd love it if you read so help me god guy and it was about our experience in the state of it thank you it's our experience in the state of indiana in the run-up to the same-sex marriage decision indiana like many other states was passing religious freedom restoration acts the media pounced on it immediately called it a license to discriminate which which legal experts even at the time said that it was it was nothing nothing of the kind uh, but we weathered that storm in Indiana. we preserved uh, uh, the religious freedom of Hoosiers and their constitutional uh, rights. but you know there was a Bible verse that really spoke to me it's at the lead of that chapter that is actually George Washington's favorite verse, which was uh, that everyone might be able to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and no one would make them afraid. you know I think as as we go forward as Americans, uh, Whether we agree or disagree on particular values, I think we ought to ever aspire uh, to show passion and respect to to every American, whatever your beliefs, whatever your value systems. And and that's how our family will always be.
0: Yep, I think that's well said. And I did read some of the passages from that chapter, including, I think, perhaps you could argue some of the two-faced posturing that we saw from a certain former mayor in your state of Indiana, who's now in the Biden cabinet, uh, who sort of treated you one way in private, and you treated him that same way, and then for political reasons tried to feed into certain uh, certain stereotypes and certain perceptions of you that I think, again, are not terribly fair in terms of who you are at your core and the way that you treat other people. I want to shift to something more immediate in our recent past. We're not quite through, actually, the 2022 elections yet. We still have a big runoff in Georgia. There are still votes being counted, believe it or not, in California I wonder, as you look at what happened two weeks ago, is there something that really jumps out at you? You know, for me, it would be the Republicans' great success in Florida, for example, led by Governor Ron DeSantis. What do you think of DeSantis personally and as a leader? And are there any big takeaways that you have from the 2022 midterms?
5: Well, people talk about there wasn't a red wave, but the truth is there was a red wave in in many states around the country and in many congressional districts. It just wasn't the national way we were looking for. And you need look no further than uh, the re-election of Governor DeSantis, the re-election of Governor Kemp uh, in Georgia, Governor Abbott in Texas. These were decisive victories. In Governor Kemp's case, he was up against probably the most formidable Democrat in the country. Stacey Abrams raised $100 million and was being talked about as a candidate for president. uh, And he defeated her handily in the fall. And and my own favorite is that Lee Zeldin, who came up short in uh, the governor's race in New York guy, he still brought with him, while he was not elected, he, he he elected four new Republicans, could well be the margin of the Republican majority, That's four right. new Republican congressmen from New York. And it was really an extraordinary campaign that he ran. So, But when I look at it, I honestly believe that the common denominator in 2022— is that candidates that were focused on the future, candidates were focused on the issues that the American people are struggling with, people here in Indiana are struggling with, which is, you know, 40-year high inflation, gas prices, crime in our major cities, and the border crisis and a fentanyl crisis to boot that's, that's besetting our nation. People that focused on the future and on solutions to those challenges did well. But candidates that were focused on the past, particularly those that were focused on relitigating the last election, did not fare as well. And so, uh, to me, as I said when I campaigned for Governor Brian Kemp the night before his primary victory, which in many ways was uh, debated along the fault lines of this very distinction guy. Yep. I yep. said the Republican Party must be the party of the future, and I think the midterm elections confirm that. We focus on the future. We focus on that agenda that Trump Pence administration championed, that you've been such a tremendous advocate for on the airwaves of America and in the Britain word. Uh, and we'll, we'll win back the Senate, we'll win back state houses, and uh, we'll win back America in 2024.
0: Well, on the subject of 2024, now that you mention it, I have some questions. We'll get to those right after this with former Vice President Mike Pence on The Guy Benson Show.
3: to a new generation of talk guy benson
0: we continue here on the guy benson show it is the happy hour thank you so much for listening we do appreciate it three to six p.m eastern every weekday five to six hour is our happy hour which is sponsored by the finished long drink our website is GuyBensonshow.com. the podcast is free shortly after the conclusion of every show Totally no charge on demand for all of you. GuyBensonShow dot com, FoxNewsPodcast dot com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. We have with us here the former Vice President of the United States under the Trump administration, Mike Pence. He is out with a new book, a memoir entitled "So Help Me God." And Mr. Vice President, right before the break, you did invoke twenty twenty four. Speaking of that. I know that you've been asked many different ways if you're going to run for president in 2024. You've sort of hinted that you think that there will be better options out there in 24 for Republican voters in the primary compared to President Trump, who's already announced. If you want to make some huge news here, we would be delighted for you to do that. Uh, If not, let me ask you a different question, sort of a different way. As you consider the question, if you're considering it, what would a timeline and process look like for you on making a big decision like that
5: yeah that's fair well first let me say i'm always humbled to be asked for heaven's sakes i'm a as you'll read and so help me god i'm a small town guy southern indiana that grew up with a cornfield in my backyard My my dad ran gas stations for a living and the idea that i had the opportunity to serve in congress to serve as governor of the state that i love and serve as your vice president is been an incredible honor. Let alone people asking me about uh, about uh, the highest office in the lands. Um, I'm 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 always honored to be asked. And, and let me just say, you know, for us, it, w- it will really come down to, uh, uh, you know, what what our hearts and our family and what we sense the American people would have us to do. I years ago, guy, a, a, a mentor of mine said, "There's two kinds of people in Washington D.C. People that are driven." And people that are called and if you read so help me god you'll you'll i was both i mean i those early campaigns i allowed my ambition to overrun my values and the standards that my faith requires of me and dealing with others but ever since we were elected to congress we've always aspired to be called um, you know when we packed up our kids and sold our dream home and ran for congress spent all of our savings you know it was out of a deep sense of calling same with Governor, same when we joined the national ticket, without hesitation. And so we're going to take some time over this Christmas. Our kids, we have two in the active duty military, so we haven't been together for three years. We'll all be home in Indiana together. We're going to spend some time talking to our kids. Karen and I will spend time in deliberation and prayer. We'll be talking to friends around the country. and I expect sometime after the turn of the year we'll, uh, we'll have a good sense of uh, where we might Next contribute, but okay. Uh, you know whether whether I'm a candidate or whether uh, uh, I'm just uh, one more voice like you in the cause. I'm never going to stop fighting uh, for the conservative agenda in this country, and I do believe that that as we continue to all of us do our part, that the best days for this country are
0: yet to come. Well, I think that's fair enough, and I know we have Thanksgiving coming up in just a few days. The fact that you all will be back together as a family is I'm sure something that you are particularly thankful for this year. Uh, Mike Pence, former vice president of the United States, former governor of Indiana, former member of the House of Representatives. He is author of this brand new book, So Help Me God. And Mr. Vice President, we so appreciate your time here today and a very happy Thanksgiving to you and Karen and your entire family from us.
5: Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, Guy, and to your family and to all of your Great listeners, it is. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for, even in challenging times. And I wish you every continued success.
0: Well, blessings to you. Thank you very much. Former Vice President Mike Pence on the Guy Benson Show, where our online home is GuyBensonShow.com, dot com. Podcast free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, dot com, dot com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you missed any of that conversation that we just had with former Vice President. Mike Pence. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Should be an interesting one because producer Christine is once again aggrieved with her mother, Judgy Joyce. Why is this? I will sit back. I will play mediator, perhaps. I'll offer some advice. We'll see what the problem seems to be with producer Christine when we come back right after this break.
3: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: a very excited person because I'm such a Thanksgiving fan, as you're aware. And one thing that I give thanks for every year, these last few years, is our free podcast, which I hear about so often from so many of you who check it out on demand every day, no charge. We do appreciate that. GuyBensonShow.com, our online source for all of our content, including that podcast. Tune in tonight. I'll be on Special Report with Brett Bayer on the panel right around 6.45 Eastern Time. That's on Fox News Channel. And at least for now, you never know with live TV, but I'm scheduled to be on America's Newsroom in the morning, sometime in the 9 a.m. Eastern Hour, with Bill and Dana or whoever's filling in on America's Newsroom, also on Fox News Channel. So hope to see you this evening and again tomorrow on The Tube. Meanwhile, here at the show, producer Christine has a bone to pick, again, with her mother, Judgy Joyce. And I've sort of been partially briefed on what happened, but I haven't gotten all the details exactly. So, Christine, you are miffed with mom, and you recently have been in the process of breaking up with your therapist because he no longer takes your insurance, so it's too expensive. So I am once again thrust into the role of unlicensed, uncompensated, and sometimes unwilling therapist for you. And it seems like this is something that we can work through together. So please explain what has happened here.
1: Okay, let me paint you a little picture. Uh, let's flash back to Thanksgiving of 2021. Uh, Christine and Bobby hosted. It was our final Thanksgiving in the home. We had just announced that we were selling the house, and we wanted one big last hurrah. So Bobby's family comes from Boston. My family comes from Philadelphia, Long Island, New Jersey. We have a nice Thanksgiving. But the one thing that we had told everybody before they sat down for the bird was there was going to be no bird. We oh were doing. Oh right. A- <laughs> We were doing a prime rib instead of turkey. Oh, no. I believed we talked about this a We lot. did.
0: I had forgotten. Christine, there are so many things that I, <laughs> they, they come in and out of my mind. I had forgotten this one. You hosted Thanksgiving and did not offer turkey on Thanksgiving as an alleged American in the United States of America. And you instead created some sort of delicious roast beast, which is fine, but not even a turkey offering on Thanksgiving. This is all coming back to me now. And I was, of course, strongly opposed to this plan. It was sacrilegious, frankly, for this secular American holiday. And yet you decided to move forward with that, I think, ill-advised decision anyway, as you so often do, despite my good advice. Okay, so then what was, like, the reaction?
1: So nobody really said much to us. My in-laws loved it. Like, they were so gung-ho. My mother... I should have known better because sometimes my mom, usually my mom voices her opinion and she lets everybody know. But sometimes she holds back, I should have known when she was like really silent on this that this was actually a problem. So Mm -hmm. flash forward to this year. We are now in an apartment, so we cannot host Thanksgiving, you know, for like 15, 20 people. So my mother is hosting and my in-laws again are coming down family from long island family from pennsylvania you know the whole crew now my mother my sister must have taught her recently how to use group texting because my mom did not know how to do any of this she's kind of like me with the technology yeah i can um, see where that comes from <laughs> so my sister does she have a was-
0: remote control on her television or does she still get up and like literally change the channel manually
1: so her remote, actually, it's funny you say that because we went to visit her on Saturday night and we were trying to watch Home Alone. And I said, Mom, I can't hear the TV. And she's <laughs> like, gets up and she's like, yeah, I don't know where the volume button is. And my husband's like, Joyce, it's on the remote. The remote wasn't working and she, she couldn't figure it out. Mm. So now, thank God, hopefully she's not listening. We're going to get her a nice TV for Christmas.
0: But like anyway. mother, like daughter. Yes. Okay, got <laughs> it. So, okay, continue with the story. She's going to be hosting.
1: She's gonna be hosting so now my sister must have taught her recently how to you know like you know like you have family group chats on your no, you know, of course. we have a we have a group chat so my mom decided <laughs> I don't think she understood like group chat uh, as opposed to like an email or evite so she puts I don't know how many people on this uh, text message everybody that's invited to Thanksgiving dinner and she's like hi everyone you know <laughs> she writes this is Joyce it's like okay. We know who you are. You're our family. And she's like, um, you know, we're look. I'm looking forward to hosting. Please arrive at 2 p.m. You all have been given, like, what to bring. And then she wrote in parentheses to everybody, and don't worry, this year there'll be a proper turkey.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. See, I don't think that she didn't know what she was doing. I think she knew full well that she was publicly shaming you to everyone involved by saying we're going to have a turkey because it's freaking Thanksgiving in the United States. We're going to have that offering at our house this year. Don't you worry. I think that was a very clear, not even like a subtle jab. That was a roundhouse for all the attendees to see. And I am absolutely on board.
1: I am so upset. My husband and I, you know, Bobby, he doesn't really care that much, but he knew I was going to be mad. So he called me. He's like, oh, no, did Georgie just ruin your Thanksgiving and I'm I actually have no. not said No no a, she said a word. she has
0: no she has improved Thanksgiving she has saved Thanksgiving unlike last year by having an actual Thanksgiving meal. She hasn't ruined anything. She has restored order to what Thanksgiving ought to be. She's doing a great service to everyone.
1: Don't you think that's a... I'm her daughter. Like, don't you think that's a little mean? I mean, I don't know if you know this about me, Guy, but I tend to be sometimes a little sensitive.
0: If you're sensitive and you're having a bunch of people come to your house for Thanksgiving, you at least provide them with turkey or brace for the backlash. And you're getting the backlash. It took a year. Obviously, a lot of people were sort of stewing on this for a year, perhaps listening to the show, listening to me being right about this, and they decided that when the timing was right... Unlike a delicious roast turkey, revenge is a dish best served cold, and a full year later you got I think what was coming to you from Judgy Joyce who's just a plain spoken jersey
1: gal. Well, one more thing. She calls okay. my husband because she's <laughs> doling out, like, what to tell everybody to bring. So she calls my husband because Bobby's a really good cook. And she's like, oh, Bobby, like, could you just make two sides? You know, maybe, like, your cream corn casserole and green bean casserole, which I can't stand green bean casserole, so I'm trying to oh, convince Bobby not again, to make it. wrong again.
0: Wrong again. It's the most important side dish at Thanksgiving
1: and my favorite. You know, you know what's so funny? I am, like, the one person, I don't like those crunchies on top. You know the ones
3: that essential.: Ew, The whole thing
1: is essential.
0: I, the green beans, know. the cream and mushroom soup, the little crunchy onion things on top. It is the mm-hmm. most delicious thing. I eat those as leftovers for like a week and a half so enthusiastically.
1: Mm-mm, I don't like... I'm trying to convince him to make some sort of like really good homemade mac and cheese. But no, I know my mother no, no. did not go... Like, she's not going to go for that.
0: She made a request... <sighs> Unless you want an even more like, you know, blow up on your phone with some subtexts or some tweets, if you will, in the group text, she has made her correct request very clear. And I think you should go along with that because other people, including your mother, obviously have much better taste in these things than you. So no persuading Bobby to go off script again. You did that last year. There was obviously a big problem that brewed for a year. Us.
1: No one said a word. And on top of this, well, I asked my someone mother, finally did. I mean, I Hold said on. many
0: words. Let the <sighs> record reflect that I said many words on this show about the necessity of turkey. Obviously, people disagreed, namely you. Many others agreed, including your mother. And I guarantee you she's speaking for others here. Like, the don't worry thing is not really directed so much at you as it is at everyone else who wanted a proper turkey at their Thanksgiving meal. So she she clung on to that disappointment. And I'm saying, I think that it was a mistake. We can all move past last year's mistake. But don't compound the mistake by taking your incorrect opinion on green bean casserole and imposing it on the dinner party for Thanksgiving. Because that is a must-have, in my opinion. And Wyatt is nodding along, by the way, on that as well. So... We're just saying, Christine, just like let bygones be bygones. Don't make the problem worse.
1: That's what I tend to do. <laughs> That's, why do you think I'm in therapy? That's yep, what I, I do. I know,
0: but I, I'm trying once again to help. I'm trying to help avoid making problems worse because it's one day. This is the other thing that drives me crazy sometimes that folks who want to get totally weird and outside the box on their Thanksgiving dinner If you don't like the traditional Thanksgiving feast, you have 364 days a year to cook anything else. Your roast beef or whatever it was, your mac and cheese. I know mac and cheese is a big part of Thanksgiving for a lot of people, especially in the South. But you can go rogue and be super creative whenever you want. You can even do a Thanksgiving meal tweaked in the middle of March for some reason if you want to. But as a traditionalist, especially around this holiday, for the love of God, just leave the traditional feast alone. It is perfect for one day a year. And if it's not your favorite, you can suck it up for one day and let the rest of us actually enjoy it.
1: Does that make sense? I guess so. Uh, I'll try. I'll think about it a little more. But, you know, also, I called her and said, Mom, what can I make? You asked Bobby to make things. Do you want me to bake something? Do you want me to cook something? And she goes, oh, I don't know, Chris. Just roll up some hot dogs and bring them. (laughs) That's all she thinks I can handle. (laughs) Like like pigs in a blanket? Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: I mean, those are good, and someone has to make them. You can just buy the frozen ones, probably, and heat them up in the oven. And you can be like, look what I did, Ma. And then she'll be proud of you, and she'll have a turkey this time, so everything will be fine. You can also make Cosmos. How about that?
1: She doesn't drink, but I do. Oh, that's right. Oh, don't worry. There'll be be plenty, plenty of booze there.
0: So what is your favorite side dish for Thanksgiving? Because I was tweeting a little bit about this last night, and I know you saw... My preferences. We know your incorrect opinions already. Can you maybe redeem yourself a little bit with this answer, your favorite Thanksgiving dish? And follow-up question, if you had to choose either gravy or cranberry sauce, you could only have one, which one would you choose?
1: Oh, I'd probably... Oh. No, you can't... (laughs) I guess gravy because if I'm gonna have to have the turkey, I gotta pour a lot of gravy on it.
0: Mm. So I guess gravy take- is a def- I would probably say cranberry sauce, but especially our homemade version of it. But gravy is a defensible answer here. I'll allow it. And then your favorite
1: side. I would say stuffing would probably have to be my favorite side. My grandparents made like the Italian stuffing, like with like sausage in it, and stuff. Oh, mm, it was that's delicious. Good. No, that's really that good.
0: So okay, that's good. a that's a good answer. I probably have a different answer. I mean, you know, green bean casserole is at the very top for me. Wyatt, do you have a favorite side dish?
5: Yes, green bean casserole.
0: Green bean casserole. Excellent, Wyatt. Well done as usual. Dan, what about you? Mashed potatoes all the way. Mashed potatoes and gravy yeah. and peas. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, oh Peas. Yeah, you make a little volcano, like a little hole in the mashed potatoes, and you put the peas in, and then you put the gravy like lava. We have a six-year-old running the board here at the Guy Benson <laughs> Show, apparently. We, we just discovered that. But mashed potatoes, also very solid. But the good news is you don't need to have just one. You don't need to have just a favorite. To me, it's the whole thing. The whole thing. And it's Thursday. It's so soon. And then we can finally start talking about Christmas. Eventually. Not just yet.